Our passage today in Ruth chapter 4 has some odd laws in it. I'm going to explain some of them. Um, but the Bible's not the only place that has odd laws. Um, I grew up in Alaska, been here for 23 years, but grew up in Alaska. I moved there when I was 8 and didn't move until I was about 30. And um, in Alaska, we grew up with this law. You're not allowed to build a snowman that is taller than you are. Kind of a weird law, but here's, here's the rationale behind that. If you build a snowman that's your height, it's harder to distinguish whether that's a snowman or a person who's covered up in snow that needs to be rescued. So no snow, snowman higher than you, okay? Now, Alaska's not the only place with weird laws. I got a few lawyers to check on this. I eliminated some of the ones that are myths, and um, here are some real Arkansas laws that are still on the books today. Uh, one of them says this, you can't flirt on the streets of Little Rock. Um, Little Rock Ordinance 2502, Section 4, from 1918, never been repealed, says this, it shall be unlawful for any person to attract or to endeavor to attract the attention of any person of the opposite sex upon traveling along any of the sidewalk streets or public ways of the city of Little Rock by staring at, winking at, coughing at, did not know that coughing was a pickup line, <laughs> coughing at or whistling at such person with the intent or in any way calculated to annoy or to attempt to flirt with any such person. So if you're in Little Rock, no flirting. No coughing at anybody, no winking at anybody. You can't, you can't do this. Now, it's not just street laws. There's actually some um, hunting laws that are true. Literally on the books, Arkansas Hunting Regulation 1605, they had to determine it's against the law to bother bears while they're napping. It shall be unlawful to shoot or disturb bears in dens at any time. Which, by the way, this is a common sense thing as well as a law. Um, the, the version of this in Alaska is literally, a law in Alaska says, you cannot take a selfie of a bear and yourself in their den. Okay, if you're doing that, I have some other issues I need you to take care of if you're crawling in the den with a hibernating bear to take a selfie. Um, now, the laws that are going to play themselves out in the book of Ruth are going to be um, related to how they settled um, transactions, where they settled them, who settled them, um, how the transactions were sealed related to land deals. Um, there's even a, a law that is related to the acquisition of property, and with the acquisition of the property comes the, the wife. Um, so, Here's what happened in, in, the, in the book of Ruth, if you'll remember, we're here in chapter 4, we'll be here for a couple of weeks. Um, Naomi and Elimelech and their two sons have left uh, the land of Israel. They've gone to the land of Moab. Elimelech and the boys die. They have married. Um, it's time for them to come back. And Naomi comes back with Ruth. And today in our, in our passage, there's someone who's going to have the opportunity to redeem the land. We'll talk more about that, but to, to get the land back so that Naomi and Ruth can use it for their purposes. Well, what's going to happen in this passage is um, a guy's going to be willing to redeem the land, but he doesn't want the wife that comes with the land, which, by the way, is why we built a house. I mean, I've got a wife. I like her a lot. I did not want to go buy a house and the guy say, okay, yeah, you get my wife too. No, didn't want that. So we just, you know, play it safe. We built a house, and so no, no wife came with it. 
the laws in this land, in this um, passage, are going to be a little tricky, and I'll have to explain some of them as we go along. The book of Ruth, though, has been really inspiring to us, I think, as we have gone through it. I, last week, I pointed out that in the Hebrew arrangement of the scriptures, Ruth follows Proverbs. At the end of Proverbs, in Proverbs chapter 31, verses 10 through 31, you get the example of what it looks like for anyone, man or woman, to live with the principles of wisdom portrayed in the book of Proverbs. It's not just for wisdom, for women, it's for anyone who's living this life of wisdom. Immediately following that passage is the book of Ruth, which is really a, a real-life example in everyday living of a, a man, Boaz and Ruth, who live out these principles. Think about what they've done. In this book, um, they have... Um, feared the Lord and even lived above the requirements of the law. They've gone way beyond what is required. Um, They've had an impact on their family, and we'll see that again today. They've had an impact on the community. That's exactly what um, happens. And at the very end of Proverbs chapter 31, they are praised in the city gate. That's going to happen today. Ruth is the perfect example of the epitome of living a life of wisdom. Ruth and Boaz both um, show us what this looks like in everyday life. Uh, last week after church, Dawn said, yeah, well, then why is, why is the English Bible not arranged the same way? Well, in our English Bibles, if you'll notice, um, Ruth follows Judges, and really, we'll see, it's because of that first line in the book of Ruth that says, in the time when the judges ruled. But I think it's not just the historical connection. I also think in our English Bibles, what we're seeing is that Ruth is an example of faithful living in a hostile world. That's what was going on in the book of Judges. Um, political structures were falling apart, and the world was just coming apart at the seams, and morality was on the decline. And in the middle of that time period, Boaz and Ruth are living as stellar examples of how to live in this kind of a, of a world. Uh, and so what we are here in Ruth chapter 4, again, we'll be here for two weeks, we're getting the reversal. We're, we're getting how everything has been turned around. If you'll remember, the book begins, in the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. Not only was there a famine in the land, there's death. Elimelech dies. Kilion dies. Malon dies. Um, Ruth is bitter about all of this. They're barren. None of uh, the girls, Ruth and Orpah, for 10 years they're married. None of them are having children. There's barrenness, and they're hopeless. When Naomi comes back to the land, she says, don't call me Naomi anymore. Naomi means pleasant. Don't call me pleasant. Um, call me Mara. Call me bitter. She's, she's bitter. She's hopeless. She even says to, to Ruth, hey, if you want to come back, that's fine. Um, but she doesn't really value her. She shows up in the land and she goes, look, and I went away full. I came back empty. All I've got is this Moabite girl with me. Now, what we're going to see when we get to the end of the book is that there's going to be a birth. We'll see that today. There's joy. There's rejoicing. Where there was hopelessness about the continuation of the line, today we will see the lineage. Boaz was the father of Obed, Abud, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of David, the greatest king ever. There's hope in the land. Everything is being turned around. In the book, we're seeing this reversal. And, and again, I've pointed out numerous times, even the structure of the book is a chiasm that shows the reversals. The, the smaller sections in the book are chiasms, reversals, showing that God is turning everything around. Uh, Catherine Sakefield brings it together this way. She says, 
In the course of events, the transformation from emptiness to fullness, from sorrow to joy, from death to life, anticipated by God's gift of food and Boaz's gift of grain, comes to rich and overflowing fruition here in chapter 4. A broken family is reestablished. A marginalized outsider is brought into the community circle. New life comes into the world. The atmosphere permeated with blessing and rejoicing. What starts off as this sad story of death and barrenness and, and bitterness is now going to turn around completely. Um, Alan Ross says this, God can reverse our fortunes in life. This is taught in Scripture, and again and again, it's played out here beautifully in the book of Ruth. God is perfectly able to reverse people's circumstances. In fact, sometimes he orchestrates the circumstances in order to demonstrate his power to reverse them. However, you don't know that in the middle of it. I don't know what your circumstances are now. I don't know if you look back over your life and you say, yeah, gosh, it's, it's bad. I, I didn't like where I was there. God works in the middle of those circumstances, and his desire is to reverse them for his glory as a part of his story, we'll see. But sometimes God even orchestrates those events. Um, he goes on to say this, remember what is taught in Romans, all things work together, not in isolation. You don't know until it's all said and done what God was doing and where he was going. God takes all of the events in your life. Some of them in isolation may seem tragic and horrible. They may even seem like they were wrong decisions. I want you to think about that in the book of Ruth. Um, the beginning of the book of Ruth, Elimelech and Naomi and the two boys, they leave Bethlehem to go to Moab because there's a famine. Well, is the famine because of judgment? We don't really know. Should they have left Bethlehem to go to Moab, a pagan land? We don't really know. It's not very clear. Should the boys have married Moabite women? Well, I don't know what kind of a decision that was, but here's what I do know. God takes all of those decisions, right, wrong, and different. God takes all of those decisions. He works them together to bring about good. It was essential to get Ruth into the story. So I don't know um, where you are. If you're looking back at your life and you're wondering, I don't know whether that was a right decision or a wrong decision. I probably don't know either. <laughs> But God can work all of these things together to bring about good. It doesn't mean in isolation they're not horrible. It doesn't mean you should know what's going on. Sometimes we never figure it out. By the way, Job never figured it out. Um, I, I love what um, an old Bible teacher on the radio, J. Vernon McGee, said about this. He said, If Naomi had not left Bethlehem and gone to Moab and brought Ruth the Moabitess back, you might as well call the wise men and tell them not to come. It was essential that they go get Ruth because Ruth is a part of this story and she's going to become not only named as a, an ancestor of David, Matthew, we're going to look at this more next week, Matthew puts her in the genealogy of Jesus Christ. It was essential for all of these things to happen. And in the middle of it, you're wondering, good, bad, good, bad. Is this, gosh, this is horrible. But God uses every bit of it to bring this... <laughs> this poor lady, Naomi, back with a Moabite daughter-in-law so that she has to glean because she's poor, because she doesn't have any fields left, but she happens to just show up in the field of Boaz, who is this man of noble character who begins to take care of her and begins to redeem the entire situation. Uh, this book is 
is designed to show us that God's in control. We need to trust him. Be as faithful as we can. We'll see that in Ruth and Boaz. Um, But don't give up when things seem to be going all the wrong directions. I have some resources for you out there at the Connection Center. Another overview from the Bible Project. Um, They're talking about how there's a big message in this short story, just four chapters. Um, I've got one out there that's on the archaeological background of Bethlehem and the city gates. um, It's a shorter article that's kind of giving you the background. We're going to have to talk about that some today. Um, for those of you who are really into the technical stuff, you really, really I've got another article, very small print, um, very technical archaeological article on um, the, the background of the archaeology of Bethlehem. It's a fascinating article. There's not much archaeological stuff we know about Bethlehem because we kept building churches on top of everything, uh, the Church of the Nativity and all of that. And so if you want to see, um, you really want something technical, I've got it there for you. If, you. if you're like, okay, move on, I don't need the technical. The last article on Hesed is really just a poetic presentation from Michael Card's book um, on the word Hesed, Indescribable, in which he just takes, um, I don't know, 70 words to say these words represent what hesed means. Um, and, and it's just one page, and it's just a bunch of words that kind of uh, try to get you understanding this hesed, which is so central to the book. Hesed is central because God is hesed towards his people, faithful. I've, I've, the English translations struggle with what to do with it. His loyal love, his loving kindness, his faithful love, his covenant love. Um, as Michael Carb would say, it's inexpressible. It is uh, generous acts of kindness for those who are in a hopeless situation and can't uh, meet their own needs, but someone with resources graciously reaches out to meet their needs. That's chesed. God does that for us. And because he's been that loyal to us, we should be that loyal to him, and we should be that loyal to others of God's people that he's showing that chesed to. God is chesed to others, and sometimes he wants to show his chesed through us. That's the book of Ruth and how it's all pulled together. Now, a little bit of background. What's going to happen is the scene today in chapter 4 is going to take place in the city gate. Um, This is a picture of a gate from um, the Middle East. If you go to many cities in Europe, they still have these gates. Uh, In Czech, they're called blanas. Um, It's it's usually an arched way that leads you into a central part uh, or a new part of the city. And as you go through these gates, um, what happens is they're, they're broad and they're, they're designed in such a way that they can be defensive and they can uh, defend the city. Now, this is from a much larger city than what Bethlehem would have been at the time. Bethlehem, um, at the time of Jesus, is the clearest thing. I, at the time of Jesus, Bethlehem would have been between three and 600 people. So it's not going to have a gate this big, but it's going to have a similar structure that may have looked a little bit more like this. Um, this is a drawing that was used for a model. And, and you can see the gate is right there. That's where you come in. But I want to point out something else. A lot of these cities and some of the smaller ones would have had a series of gates where you came in one area and then you moved through another gate to go into the center of the town. And, and what would happen is this area right there that I, I got the arrow on, that became kind of a courtyard marketplace. Um, It's a place where people would have brought their fruits and their vegetables, uh, their corn, um, their um, gluten-free 
pastries, uh, whatever they were going to sell for the day, they would have brought them there. And, and a lot of business would have been transacted there. People are passing out their business cards. Um, the, the people of the city would gather there in this marketplace. This is the area that our scene is going to take place in today. Now, a little bit more realistic, this is probably what they would have looked like. This is a, um, a, an excavation from Israel. Um, here's an excavation from Tel Dan. It's probably the most well-excavated uh, place in Israel, um, it, very far from where Bethlehem is. Again, we don't have much from Bethlehem. Uh, but this is a, truly the gate. The rocks behind it is the gate. But what has been reconstructed here in the wood is probably the place where legal decisions would have been made. In this marketplace, when legal decisions were made, they would gather the men, as Boaz is going to do, to go to a place, and, and they would make the decision here in this setting. So that's what's going on in our passage. And what we're going to see in our passage today, first of all, is a negative thing. We're going to see that if you're, if you're trying to protect your reputation, like a guy in the story is going to do, we don't know his name, I'll talk about that more in just a moment, He's trying to protect his reputation, and he loses his name, literally. He loses his name. Um, here, here's how the story starts. Meanwhile, Boaz went up to the town gate and sat there, just as the guardian redeemer he had mentioned came along. Um, this guardian redeemer is the, is the guy that Boaz has been talking to Ruth about. Remember, Naomi and Ruth come back to, uh, to Bethlehem. Ruth goes out to glean in the field. She just happens to happen upon the field of Boaz. Uh, Boaz starts to take care of them. Ruth tells, uh, or Naomi tells Ruth, uh, let Boaz know that you're no longer mourning over the death of your husband. You're available to be married. Boaz says, I will marry you. Her heart's all aflutter. Oh, he's got to marry me. He says, but somebody else has, a, has the, the first right of refusal here. And I have to go talk to him. Not only is he a chesed man, he's a righteous man. He's going to do things the right way. And so he's going to show up at the city gate. He's going to sit down just as this closer kinsman comes. And Boaz says to him, come here, my friend. Um, it's a generous translation, my friend. Um, I, don't, I often say Hebrew words, but I'm going to teach you some Hebrew because it's fun. I, this is a fun word to say. The word translated, my friend, is Poloni Almoni, okay? It's, it's kind of funny, isn't it? Poloni Almoni, I get it. Um, it, it is, it is a, a, a sing-songy word that really doesn't have a meaning. It's kind of like our English word mishmash or willy-nilly. What does willy-nilly mean? Could you explain it? Could you define willy-nilly? Um, um, I'm frequently trying to... Um, explain English to my Czech friends and uh, try to help them understand certain things. For instance, uh, one of the things that happens frequently is my Czech friends will say, Ken, we will meet you on the airport and ride you to my house. Let's not do that. <laughs> um, I can explain kind of transitive, intransitive verbs and kind of get it in the right spot where you are going to give me a ride to your house. But sometimes it's hard. Why are they meeting me at the airport. That's what we'd say, right? I'll meet you at the airport. But they, they would say, I'm going to meet you on the airport. Why am I meeting them on the airport? You tell me why. I am on the airport. I don't know why that's wrong. And it's hard to explain. And so finally, I just have to say, it's just how we say it. Just how we say it. Now, but then you get to words like willy-nilly. Oh my gosh, it was just all willy-nilly. 
Ooh, this willy-nilly. What is this willy-nilly? Uh, it's, uh, willy is, I don't know, is a wet willy? I don't, I don't, willy-nilly. I don't know exactly how to explain willy-nilly, but it has a meaning and it, and it kind of has a fun sound to it because the things are just kind of wild and um, they're willy-nilly. <laughs> Pomoni-almoni is the same kind of word. Um, Pomoni-almoni is a word that means I know something, but I'm not going to tell you. It, it's kind of a hidden way to talk about something. It's poloni-almoni. Um, it's used by Saul in a battle where he's sending a messenger and telling uh, another person in the battle, meet me at Pomoni-almoni, such and such a place. Meet me at this. I don't want to identify it. It would be dangerous for some reason. I don't want to exactly identify it, but I know what it is. So when, when Boaz says, come over here, Pomoni Almoni, I just like saying it, by the way, Pomoni Almoni. Come over here, Pomoni Almoni. Sit down. So he goes over and sits down. He, he knows the guy's name. He's a relative. It's not like he forgot his name and goes, ah, Pomonia. No, he knows it. There's a reason for this. Um, one Jewish scholar says it this way, so-and-so, Hebrew pomoni almoni, an expression used when a name of a person or a place is immaterial to the narrative. Here, however, the term is intentionally and conspicuously used to avoid naming the character. The purpose for the anonymity of the man remains a mystery. As scholars note, it is not likely that Boaz doesn't know the man's name. If the name were insignificant to the author, the designation could simply have been eliminated. You, could, you would, didn't have to use Pomoni Almoni. Um, some rabbis and sages, rabbinic sages, as well as modern scholars, suggest that not naming implies measure-for-measure measure justice. The one who refuses to preserve the name of a kin deserves to have his own name vanish. Others argue that the narrator may wish to protect him from the embarrassment resulting from his inability or unwillingness to undertake responsibility for Ruth and Naomi. By the way, I don't buy that they're trying to protect his reputation. Oh gosh, he was just embarrassed, he couldn't do it. Let's not name him. I don't think that at all, because the passage goes out of its way to make naming really important. You're going to see that as it plays itself out. George Schwab pulls this all together. He says this, The unnamed kinsman acted to secure his name, but it has long since been last, lost. Boaz risked the loss of his name, but his fame will live to the end of the world. The new kinsman redeemer, Pomoni Almoni, he basically says, I'm not going to take on the redemption of this family because it's too risky to my resources. He's protecting his resources and his reputation. And we don't know his name. He's just Poloni Almoni, so-and-so. He's just random dude, John Doe. But Boaz, who you will see his name is great. Boaz goes above and beyond. He doesn't just do what's right. He lives chesed. He lives the kind, generous life that says, because I have been blessed, I will bless others. And that's what we see in this passage. Boaz took 10 of the elders, he went around in the marketplace, got 10 of the elders of the town and said, sit down here, Pomoni Almoni. And they did so. They sit down, all the 10 men and Pomoni Almoni. They sit there. Now, the question is, why, why 10 men? Um, just give you a little insight into how the rabbis thought. 
um, 10 men are going to decide this case, and it takes 10 men to be um, a synagogue. If when the rabbis later on were determining, uh, okay, there's a synagogue, and um, how many people does it, does it take to make an official synagogue? How, how many do you have to have to have a congregation? The rabbis are trying to figure this out, and they know they need some number. They come up with the number 10 for a congregation because they go to a passage in the Bible where this word congregation is used. Here's where it's used. When Moses sends the 12 spies into the land in the book of Numbers, in Numbers 13, he sends 12 spies into the land. Um, Two of them come back saying, we can do it because our God is great. Ten of them come back and say, we can't do it, there's giants in the land. The ten people are described as a congregation. Here's the verse in Numbers 14. The Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron saying, how long shall this wicked congregation grumble against me? Um, how long do I have to put up with these 10 men? <laughs> and they said, okay, ten, if 10 men is a congregation to God, then it's a congregation. From that, it takes now 10 men to settle a case. So here's how this thing works out. Then he said to the guardian redeemer, Naomi, who's come back from Moab, is selling the piece of land that belonged to our relative Elimelech. I thought I should bring the matter to your attention and suggest that you buy it in the presence of these seated here, these 10 men seated, and in the presence of the elders of my people. If you redeem it, do so. But if you will not, tell me, and I will know for, for no one has the right to do it except you, and I'm next in line. I will redeem it, he said. He said, I'll take it. By the way, it seems like there's a crowd gathering. He's got the 10 pen. 10 men, but even more of the elders and all the people are starting to gather around because they know, oh, something's happening here. That Ruth and, uh, and um, Boaz story has probably been circulating and they're like, oh my gosh, what's going to happen? People are, are gathering around. Now, why is this happening? We, we don't know all the details behind it. I think Bob Chisholm reconstructs it fairly well when he says this. Elimelech may have sold the land when he left for Moab. Remember Elimelech, Elimelech, his two sons, and Naomi, they leave for Moab. There's a famine in the land. He probably sold the land either because he didn't think he was coming back or because he sold it because the famine was so bad he had to sell it to try to last even longer, but now he doesn't have it. Naomi, as Elimelech's widow, had the right, but not the means. She's poor. She's destitute to redeem it and work the land. She, she had the right a family ownership, and she could redeem it. It's like it was sold at a pawn shop. She could go back and redeem it. She just didn't have enough money. She didn't have enough resources to do it. That's why she needs a kinsman redeemer to go back and redeem it for her. It is the right of redemption and subsequent usage that she offered here to the closer relative. Um, She's basically saying this through Boaz. Listen, this is our family land. We sold it before we went back. If I had it, Ruth and I could work it. We could make some money on it, and we wouldn't have to be poor gleaners in, in, in the world anymore. So we need one of our relatives to buy it back for our family and let us use it. And initially, the nearer kinsman redeemer, Poloni Almoni, he says, okay, I'll do it. But like so many times in the book of Ruth, there's a twist. Then Boaz says, On the day you buy the land from Naomi, you also acquire Ruth, the Moabite, the dead man's widow, in order to maintain the name of the dead with his property. Again, I'm so glad this is not a law today. Um, If you buy the property, 
you get the property and any women that go with it, <laughs> and you've got to take care of them. But that was their law. If you get the property, you're not just redeeming the property, you're redeeming and now taking care of the family. And part of what you need to do to take care of the family is produce an heir so that there will be an heir who will own the land. Which is totally what explains his response. At this, the guardian redeemer said, then I can't redeem it because I might endanger my own estate. I'm going to use my resources to redeem this land, produce an heir, and then my resources are gone because the land then goes to the heir I produce, not to me. So he says, you redeem it yourself. I can't do it. By the way, nothing wrong with that. It was okay. It was legal. It just wasn't chesed. He did all of the bare minimum. But Boaz is going to go above and beyond. And because of that, we don't know Pomoni Almoni's name. But we know Boaz's name. Now, in earlier times in Israel, here's another weird law. For the redemption and transfer of property to become final, one party took off his sandal and gave it to the other. This was a method of legalizing transactions in Israel. By the way, they weren't, obviously, when the book is written a number of years later, they weren't still doing this. But they're highlighting, hey, here's an old law, not on the books anymore, here's an old one. So the guardian redeemer said to Boaz, buy it yourself, and he removed his sandal and gave it to him. The idea is, wherever this sandal used to walk, you get to own it now. The sand that's on my sandal because I was walking there, now you get to own the place where the sand used to be that was on my sandal. So here's, here's my pledge to you. You can own the land. So they make the transaction, and now Boaz is now the person who can redeem. And here's what we're going to see. Selfless acts of generous kindness. That's my attempt to say chesed. Selfless acts of generous kindness, where there's loving kindness and loyal love and covenant love, when you use your resources that God has blessed you with to help others who are in a helpless place themselves. Because that's what God does for us, and that's what we are called on to do for others. Selfless acts of generous kindness are recognized by others, and they're blessed by God. We're going to see that. They're recognized by others, and they're blessed by God. George Swab says, in this section of the story, the sting of death is rolled back by the true goel of God, the true Redeemer who has not forsaken his hesed to the living or the dead, whose latter hesed surpasses the former, who reinstates what death and famine have destroyed. And once again, God as hesed and people as hesed are interchangeable. Because God is the one who's redeeming, but he's using Ruth and Boaz to be the human instruments through whom that redemption comes because they are not just living by the law. That's what Pomoni Almoni does. He does the bare minimum. Um, he does just what he can get by with to be okay. Um, he shows up at church. Maybe he's involved in a community, in a small group. He's, he gives his offering. That's it. Nothing more. But Boaz and Ruth, they're going above and beyond. And as they go above and beyond, they are the instruments that God is using to reverse everything in the story. And people are going to recognize it and God is going to bless it. Then Boaz announced to the elders and all the people, they're all gathered around, they're cheering, ah, oh, Boaz and Ruth finally getting married, Pomoni Almoni, we don't need you in the story anymore. Today you are witnesses 
that I have bought from Naomi all the property of Elimelech, Kilion, and Malon. I've also acquired Ruth the Moabite, Malon's widow, as my wife. In order to maintain the name of the dead, again, the name comes out, and his, with his property, so that his name will not disappear from among his family or from his hometown. Today, you are witnesses. His name's going to show up in all of the genealogies now because he's going to have a lineage. I'm the one who's preserving his name. Then the elders and all the people of the gate said, We are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your home like Rachel and Leah, these great ancestors in Israel, who together built up the family of Israel. May you have standing in Ephrata and be famous. This is our word, Hayel, a Gibor Hayel, a, 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 a mighty warrior man, an aristocrat. It's the, Hayel is the word used that, that Ruth is a noble woman. May you be um, Hayel. May you be famous, well-known in Bethlehem. Uh, through the offspring the Lord gives you, by this young woman, may your family be like that of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah. Genesis 38. Scandalous story. We'll have to get to it next week. As the story nears an end, the faithful who love God and live with Hesed are abundantly blessed and become a part of God's redemptive story. Now, I'm going to focus on this much more next week when I talk about God's redemptive story and how they fit in, but I've got to introduce it to you today. So Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife. When he made love to her, the Lord enabled her to conceive, and she gave birth to a son. The Lord is the one who enabled her to conceive. Maybe even the barrenness back in the land of Moab for 10 years, God may have been orchestrating that in order for this to happen here. God works all things together for good. The Lord enabled her to conceive. The Lord's doing it, but obviously Ruth and Boaz, they have a part in this. Um, Catherine Sakefield, God gives conception, but the marriage union would not have happened apart from the preceding sequence of extraordinary acts on the part of human characters, most especially Ruth and Boaz. God does it, but he often uses human people to carry it all out. The woman said to Naomi, Praise be to the Lord who this day has left you, has not left you without a guardian redeemer. May he be famous, literally, may his name be called. Again, the name. And by the way, this is the child. This is not Boaz. May his name be called throughout Israel. He will renew your life and sustain you in your old age. For your daughter-in-law who loves you and who is better, better to you than seven sons has given him birth. She came back and, and she kind of even is only barely recognizing Ruth. And now they're saying, Ruth's been better to you than seven sons because now you've got a redeemer who's going to take care of you in your old age. And they had no idea where this was going. <laughs> then Naomi took the child in her arms and cared for him. The women living there said, Naomi has a son. We'll come back to that next week. Naomi has a son? I thought Ruth has a son. Naomi has a son. And they named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. In this grand story, what is being accomplished is something bigger than just their individual lives. Kenway captures it this way, God's blessings are often realized through the faithful actions and prayers of his people. God uses us. Here's how I would say it. As God is sovereignly orchestrating his redemptive plan, he blesses us so we can bless others as a part of that plan. Again, uh, there was no spiritual insight into the book of Ruth when we 
um, came up with our mission statement. We literally were just trying to freshen up our mission statement about 10 years ago, and uh, we narrative and story was a real big thing, and so we kind of changed our mission statement to say, um, fellowship invites people to enter God's story. I kind of like that now. <laughs> I really like that we invite people to enter God's story. God's story of redemption and restoration of lives and ultimately looking forward to his rule and setting everything right. We're a part of that redemptive plan. And God is, God is orchestrating it, but he blesses us so we can bless others. He chesed us so we can chesed others. And you can, you can play by the bare minimum if you want and just get by. It's okay. But how deeply do you want to be a part of God's story? I've got two next steps for you, and they're actually the same. Evaluate your participation in God's redemptive story. Are you a part of it? We, we try to invite you into God's story. And, and by the way, there's a lot of places to be involved. You don't have to, out of some sense of guilt, go, okay, I'm going to sign up for this or that or that. You know what? We don't need you in, in the places you don't want to be involved. But there's a place for every part of the body of Christ. If you're kind of mean and grumpy and sour and you have a stern visage, I know a man who used to describe himself, I have a stern visage. If you have a stern visage, do not get on our greeting team. We don't want you there. <laughs> but there is a place for you. Um, there, there's a place for people who can work with our kids, work in the nursery, work with our youth, work with our college students, leading a small group, working on the landscape team around here, being part of the mission care team, Operation Christmas Child, um, women's ministry, men's ministry. There's all kinds of places for you to serve. And if you don't know where any of them are, talk to me. I can, we can talk about what your shape is. What is. What's your spiritual gift? What's your passion for ministry? What are you able to do? What's your personality type? What is the experiences God's given you? There a place for every part of the body of Christ. And are you going to be a participant or are you going to end your life going to the grave as Pomoni Almoni? And you may be going, oh, I'm satisfied with Pomoni Almoni. Really, when you have the opportunity to be a part of God's story and, and to be a part of this great redemptive act to where you say, yes, because God was hesed to me. I understand that. I'm going to be hesed to everybody else. Get off the sidelines. Get involved in the story. I'm inviting you to get involved in the story of God. I feel myself ranting right now. I'm ranting about it. I don't know if this is spirit or flesh, but I'm inviting you to get out of your seat, get into the story of God, stop being Pomoni Almoni, be Boaz or Ruth, use the resources God has given you in the shape God has shaped you to get something done in this great redemptive story. Father, thanks for the invitation that you give us through stories like this in Scripture. People who are so like us, going through hard times, um, people who are at stages of their life really bitter, people who are blessed abundantly with resources beyond what they could have ever imagined in their life, people who come from difficult backgrounds, Naomi's and Boaz's and Ruth, and you redeem them. 
and you invite them, like us, to be a part of your story. We are not qualified to be a part of it. Only by your grace are we a part of your family, and because of your hesed can we be involved in your story. May we live lives that are worth our names being remembered and mentioned. One day, when we stand before you, and you call our name, and you say, well done, Kent Wilson, good and faithful servant, enter into the joy of the Lord. May we live to hear our name called on that day. And I pray that in Christ's name. Amen.